Thank you. Well, good morning, church. You know, I hope this has been an exciting week for you. Oh, is that the clicker? Yeah, that'd be great. Actually, that'd be really awesome. You know, a few days ago it was Valentine's Day, which is exciting. Got to take my wife out to dinner, a nice dinner, which was very encouraging for both of us. We had babysitting from Kayla Davis, which was enormously encouraging, getting to actually go out and spend that time. And then just yesterday, we got to be a part of an incredible wedding of Davis and Colleen Lee that we cannot say enough about. I mean, it was so much fun. Uh, and our first, really, Olivia and I's first wedding here in Santa Clarita, and I felt like the bar was set really high. So that's really awesome. You know, we've been moving towards the end of our 40 Days of Prayer series. And my hope and my prayer for all of us is that as this series begins to come to a close, that really nothing changes. In the sense that I hope in these last 40 days, well, 30 and change, that you've been really building some exciting, some inspiring new patterns in your relationship with God. That when this series ends, nothing changes. That your prayer life has been elevated. That your relationship with God has been taken to new depths and new places and continues to move forward in that way. My title of my lesson this morning is How to Pray for Healing and Restoration. And if you'll turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. You know, it's no secret that the world needs healing. In fact, if you're feeling particularly chipper one day and you need something to humble you out or bring you down, you just need to turn on the news for like 30 minutes. And you'll see very clearly that the world is in desperate need of healing. In that 30-minute span of time, you can see just the addictions of the world, the conflicts, the bigotry, the division, the poverty, the moral issues that are going on in our world. But even more than that, it's easy to see how much our neighborhoods need healing. Our coworkers, our family members, our own hearts, minds, and lives. Maybe it's hurts and conflicts in your marriage that need healing. Scars or old wounds from your family, from your childhood that need healing. The repercussions of sin, things in your character. It, it, you could just go down a list. We all need healing and restoration in one way or another. And how do we do that? Well, in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God is talking to Solomon, who's king during the time. And he tells him, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear them from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And what an incredible passage, right, that God tells, incredible thing that God tells Solomon. And the feeling can sometimes be, but Chaz, I, I thought when I got baptized that, uh, that I was healed. That, you know, sin was forgiven, like all the bad went away. This is, this is all good now. Like, you don't understand, this is 100% all good moving forward. And, you know, it's interesting, when you read scriptures about baptism, when you read scriptures like in Acts 2 or in 1 Peter, right, baptism, you're promised by God the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are not promised healing at baptism. 
And I remember even as a young Christian, when I was studying the Bible, or before I was a young Christian, when I was studying the Bible, I was sitting with the campus brothers. And, and I asked them, I said, so when I, you know, so when I get baptized, so when I'm saved, like, I'm going to be healed from, like, ever sinning again, right? Like, that's not, you know, working through some things. Like, that's just never going to happen. I remember in true campus fashion, one of the brothers looked across the, uh, the table at me and he goes, Chaz, salvation is going to save you from sin. It, it, it's not going to save you from stupid. Like, that's on you. I'm like, oh, how is this going to happen? You know, but when you read this passage, man, God is telling Solomon, healing and restoration come by prayer. That it's one of the greatest promises from God that we can be healed from our past, that we can be healed in our character, in our marriage, and in our families, and in our lives. But it's interesting, when you read this passage, it comes with certain premises, that God couples his promises in this way with some of these premises. And so today we're going to be breaking down the scripture, looking at some others as we examine, okay, how do we pray then for healing and restoration? My first point this morning is you've got to admit I'm not in control. You know, no matter who you are, when you look out your window and you see a tornado coming in the distance... There's definitely a feeling of, man, I am not in control, right? And one of the things that God said to Psalm, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. The first step to being healed is we've got to come to God with a great humility. And that, it's kind of, okay, well, what does that mean, though, humility? How do we break that down? Humility, in one sense, is connecting with who you really are before God. And connecting with, okay, you are God And I am not. That at the end of the day, my power, my scope, my control of my life is infinitely limited where his is not. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking of God more. And there's a difference there. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and thinking about God more. Man, why is this important? This is important because we live in a world that really values control and values when we focus on ourselves. This whole idea, I make my own destiny. Like, I'm a self-made man. That's like one of the greatest things that, you know, our society, oh, he's a he's a self-made man. Oh, that she she's an independent woman. She handles handles her business all by herself. Right. It's like this is if someone said that of you, like, wow, he was a self-made man. It's like. I was. I did that. Right? And, in, and in, it's so funny. In one of the greatest movies of our generation, one of my favorite movies, there's this quote where uh, one of the characters looks at the other and he says, do you believe in fate, Neo? And he goes, no. Without hesitation, no. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my destiny. And that sums up Really, the world. I don't like the idea that I'm not in control. I built this company from nothing. I did. I trained harder than all the rest. I did. I put in the tears and the sweat and the hours of studying to get into that college. I did. It's all about the I. The focus on what did I do? Where is my... I exerted so much control that I made this happen. 
And we can look at that even, even for all the, the disciple, all the members of the church. We can even look out at the world and go, wow, yeah, that's messed up. But those things creep in here, too. And we've got to really catch ourselves and make sure that we're approaching God, continuing to admit that we're not in control. This can affect our desire to serve. When you start to maybe feel like, well, if I serve in that way, everyone's going to see me do it. Like, okay, I'll do, I'll go serve because, you know, then everyone will know, wow, what a servant I am. And if that starts to become our motivation, it starts to affect our relationships. Well, this is how much I'm comfortable investing in this friendship. Like, I'm willing, this brother, like, we're, we're pretty cool. I'm willing to go this far, but not like with this brother over here. I feel much more comfortable, so I'm willing to invest everything over here. Walking into, you know, a midweek or a fellowship opportunity and going, okay, what is everyone, you know, the, the insecurity. Well, what is everyone thinking of me right now? And even in our community, in our family groups, well, I don't want to be a part of that. Family. I don't, they're not really my people. I don't, we don't have the history there. I'm not comfortable. What is all of that? That's all control. And it's all a desire to be in control, thinking about ourselves. And yet God is constantly trying to remind us in little ways and in really big ways, just how out of control we are and yet how much he wants to be there for us in those moments. How much he wants us to stop thinking about ourselves and to start thinking about him. It's interesting, right? When natural disasters come, people reflexively start thinking about God. It didn't matter if you had a million dollar house when, you know, that hurricane hit Houston. There were gators in your living room. That was out of your control. Right? When the tornado's coming, it doesn't matter. If you were a self-made man, that tornado really doesn't care. And suddenly we start thinking about, wow, God, wow, God is so powerful. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big reminder. But there are little reminders as well. For all the parents, babies are a great reminder. You know, when, when we had Emily, uh, we'll humble themselves. When we had, this is my daughter on the left at five months old. It's one of my favorite pictures. I'm holding her up. She's not standing at five months. She's, she's, I think she's a genius. She's not like an athletic phenom. But she spent a lot of like the first seven months of her life not doing so much of on the left and doing a lot more of on the right. A lot of crying, right? And, and what's interesting, for, for all of you who don't have kids, or it, when we took her to the doctor, you know, for all of her pediatrician checkups and stuff, we would say, like, man, she, you know, because babies cry. Like, they, they cry. They don't have any other way to communicate. They can't speak. They can barely move, right? They're just kind of like a stump with arms and legs that just can't, like, <laughs> can't do anything. So they cry. I'm hungry. I'm crying. I'm tired. I'm crying. But then there are times when they cry and nothing you do makes it stop. They're not hungry. They're not tired. They're happy. They're screaming at the top of their lungs. It just happens. And the doctors told us, on average, babies cry about two hours a day for no reason. Like they don't have an explainable reason. They just do. They just cry. And they're inconsolable for, on average, like two hours a day. So Emily it was more like four or five hours a day, like legitimately. It was like a two, 150 to 200 percent increase in the amount of crying. 
And, and it got to a point where we're going to the pediatrician because when you're just sitting in the room listening to your baby screaming for hours, when she's not sleeping, the wall, you hear her through the walls, it, like, it starts to do something. <laughs> you start to like have these thoughts. If I bang my head against the wall hard enough, like either I'll pass out or she'll be quiet. One of the two. Like you st- you're like, where did that come from? Right. And so the doctor even told us at one point, he goes, okay, this is totally healthy. If you hedge her in with pillows and you put her in the middle of the bed, she couldn't roll over and you close the door and you go do something else for 15 minutes, go watch a TV show, go wash the dishes, just do something. It would be really good for your mental health. I was like, thanks, man. But there was this one weekend where a couple, like a month or two before we moved to Santa Clarita, where, you know, Emily was having a rough time and she was upset and she was crying. And I woke up at like 4 a.m. just sicker than a dog. Like couldn't keep anything down. I'm like, Oh, and so I went back to sleep, woke up the next morning, you know, Liv and I are getting Emily going. Liv's not feeling well. So we grab her little forehead thermometer. Those things are cool. Grab the little forehead thermometer. Liv's like 100 and I'm like 102. And I'm like, and at that point, when you have a fever like that, right, everything hurts. Your joints just hurt. You can't eat. You can, I could barely keep down water. And so I'm just laying on the couch and we're, you know, trying to function as a family. And we get into one of those spells where for like four hours, Emily is just screaming. And so we're, Liv is on the couch. I'm on the couch. I'm like, pro, and then I, I get up, go to the restroom, come back, can't get back on the couch. So I'm just laying on the floor. She's screaming. Liv is crying. My head is pounding. I'm like, I'm going to die here. Like, this is just, I'm going to die on this floor. Like of insanity. <laughs> and it was, I was just totally overwhelmed. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, this small, like little thing. I'm so out of control right now. I'm a fully grown man. And this little girl is like, I'm out of control. I, I have no power over this situation. And it did make me think about God more in that moment. But God does these things to bring us back to him, to remind us. That for maybe all of our financial success or athletic ability or good luck. That you are still in very little control of your life. And the sooner we can come to this place of humility, coming before God and going, God, the only eyes that I need to be thinking of are I need your help. God, I can't do this the better off we'll be. God wants us to turn our thoughts from I to him. The what should I do to what does God want me to do? What do they think of me to what does God think of me? And even more dangerous, well, what's best for me? What does God think is best for me in this moment? It transforms those questions. We've got to admit that we are not in control. That is the first step to praying for healing and restoration. Because once we can admit that, second point, you've got to ask God for help. In Second Chronicles 7.14, it says, if they, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You know, there was a time when I was living with my mom. I was in high school. 
And she had asked me to hang this picture frame like on the wall. That was before that. She had asked me to to open up the flue. We were going to have a fire that night. And the flue was stuck. She couldn't, like, get it. Our flue, for some reason, in our fireplace was really rickety. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm hitting it with my hand. It's not going. I'm like, okay. So I look down, and she goes, just grab a hammer, which is in the garage. Okay, well. So I pick up a piece of wood, start hitting it. Nothing's happening. Okay. Just go to the garage and get the hammer. Okay, yeah. Look at what else can I like? I did not want to go to the hammer, go to the garage to get that hammer. I just started looking. So I grabbed this heavy wall hanging that my mom has. That's like wood and metal. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty sturdy. This will do it. <laughs> Again, I'm just banging away at the handle to the flute, and I bend the metal and crack the wood to her wall hanging. What was that? Nothing. Go back, hang. I mean, it's like very clearly now damaged. Like, I don't know. You're a teen. You're just kind of like, oh, no one will notice. And then I went to the garage, get the hammer, come back, one swing, ting, opens up immediately. And the point being that if I would have just gone back to the garage and gotten the hammer, I wouldn't have later gotten in trouble when my mom walked in and immediately saw the wall hanging just messed up and, you know, asked me if I had been banging on all those things. But sometimes that can be the way that we approach God in prayer. I should probably pray about this. Okay, well, hang on. Let me let me try this. Well, I should probably pray about it. Bro, you should pray about that. Okay, well, first I'm going to go down and I'm going to try harder. And our tendency can be to just try the things that we know or try the things that we think are going to work versus asking God for help. Versus just going to the garage and getting the thing that we know is going to work. If God is all-powerful and we are not, we've got to ask him for help. And it's not like God is going to begrudgingly then give you help. In John 16, in verse 23, if you'll turn there with me, right, Jesus gives us a great insight into God's attitude when we ask for help. In John 16, verse 23, the Bible reads, very truly I tell you, My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No. The father himself Loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I love that Jesus had to clarify in this passage. He goes, guys, I'm not, this isn't me going to God and I'm twisting God's arm on your behalf. I'm I'm kind of, I'm a great guy and I'm going to get God to do something he doesn't want to do. And it's going to work for you when you ask for help. He says, no, I'm not even asking on your behalf. He goes, God loves you. Because you have loved me. God is eagerly waiting to answer your prayers. Even before you ask. Sometimes we think, man, when I I ask for God, now I'm going to wait for his answer. The answer has been waiting for your question. And what would be different if we thought about it like that? That 
the answer to what your, your situation was or the power to overcome that situation was there and ready, locked and loaded, and just waiting for you to actually ask. That would change a lot. But again, we can kind of turn to the wall hanging. We can turn to the piece of wood. We can turn to, well, is this going to work? And I want you to actually write down in your notes right now. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to write down when you are overwhelmed, upset, or in trouble, what are your top three responses? Like just think about in those situations when you've been overwhelmed, upset, or in trouble in the last week, maybe two weeks, what were your top three responses? Was it to react emotionally, to shut down, to get angry? Maybe you called someone to get some input. Maybe you isolated yourself so that you could just kind of process things. Maybe you jumped on YouTube or, or something else, played some sports, went to the gym to kind of numb out. What were, what were your top three responses? And now my second question is, where was prayer among those top three responses? Was it in your top three? God wants us asking him for help to be the number one response. That your first response when you're in trouble, when you're overwhelmed, when you're feeling something, when you're excited, is to pray, is to ask him for help. In Nehemiah chapter 1, in verse 3, I'm just going to read this to you guys. Right In the book of Nehemiah, he's confronted by his brothers who come back from Jerusalem being destroyed. And it says, they said to me, because he had asked, you know, how's the city? They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God. Nehemiah was an incredibly spiritual man of God. His first response when he heard this terrible news was, I cried. Second, third, and fourth response was, mourned, fasted, and prayed. I want to challenge us on our responses to things. Right? These have been 40 days of prayer. Prayer should be in our top three. It should be our number one. Because God knows that if you go to him first, if you prioritize him first in those moments, it's the best possible way that you're going to be equipped to respond to what's going on. Right? God's promises give us an idea of what he's willing to do when we ask him for help. In Psalm 25, 9, it says, God guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. God, I don't know what to do. Let me pray. It says God is going to teach you what is right and he's going to guide you in the way. Right? In Isaiah 66, 2, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts. God, I don't know how to handle this situation. He says, okay, well, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to bless you when you come to me and ask for help. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? That's a scary thought. When God's not when asking God for help is not your first, has God been opposing the things you've been doing lately? Versus immediately going, my grace is enough for you. 
You asked for help. Here comes my grace. And finally, in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, it says, This is Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ask me for help, and I will give you rest. That sounds really good for a lot of us. When we've been thinking about the last couple weeks in our lives, rest sounds great. And if we ask for help, God promises, I will give you rest. God wants to heal us and loves it when we ask for help. But God's not going to ask for you. Right? That's part of the humility. That's part of admitting I'm not in control is that we have to be the ones to ask. To come to God and to ask for help. And when we finally admitted we're not in control and asked for help, Point number three, we've got to turn from the world to the word. Second Chronicles 7:14, and turn from their wicked ways, and then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The third part of how to pray for healing and restoration is that we've got to turn from the world back to God's word. Sometimes the biggest opponent in our own healing is us. Right? Maybe you've humbled yourself, you've come to God, you've admitted, God, I have no control, I'm, I'm a hot mess. You've asked for help, God, you've gotten on your knees, you've begged, and yet you've sabotaged yourself. Because over here, maybe where no one knows about, there's still some kind of sin that you're holding on to. That you're trying to justify or trying to kind of wiggle around. Well, that's unrelated to the healing over here. So, God, if you heal me over here, then I'll get to this later. God says, no, 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 you, you need to deal with that now. This isn't like contingent. I'm not going to approach your life sectionally. This is the whole package. This is the whole deal. In Acts 3 and verse 19, It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance cannot be a curse word in our ministries. When a brother or sister sits you down and has a loving conversation and calls you to repentance, that's got to be something that we love. Right? God even calls us to have his perspective. Psalm 141 in verse 3. I want you to write this down. Psalm 141, verse 3. Right, we see a little bit of this attitude. It says, let a righteous man strike me. That is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. For my prayer will still be against the deeds of evildoers. As hard as it can be to swallow sometimes, God really wants us to be in this spot in our own hearts where we love correction. It's like, what? Correction is painful. Like discipline, right? It says no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Like how can we love correction? Well, you don't have to love like the the hurting part in the moment, but you can be in love with what correction produces. You can be in love with the fact that an enemy multiplies kisses, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. You can be in love with the fact that when you're called to repentance, this is an opportunity to grow. 
This is an opportunity to be more like Jesus than you had previously been. That we don't have to hide from our sin. We don't have to try to escape or pretend, right? Sometimes we like to pretend. What are we pretending isn't a problem in our lives this morning. Like what's going on in your life this morning, maybe even on the drive here, that you're kind of trying to pretend isn't really a big deal. Or what sin is in your life right now that you've been trying to pretend like, well, I'll get open and I'll repent later. And somehow that's okay. Right, we, can't re- we can't pretend. In James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. God wants us to love correction. It doesn't say that it doesn't say that God wants us to repent so that times of like pain and discouragement can then be delivered to you. You're like, yeah, I love pain and discouragement. That sounds great. Like, no, he says so that it brings times of refreshing. Like, if you knew that, man, if I get open, if I confess this sin, I'm going to feel refreshed afterwards. If I were to have a brother help me repent, have a sister point something out so that I could repent, that's going to be so refreshing. Wow, that's a very different perspective than where we can sometimes go in our own hearts where someone brings, well, if they don't bring it up to me in the exact way, well, he didn't, I don't know, I, I needed to hear this. Like, there needed to be a planetary alignment. Like, it needed to be, like, the right weather. It's too hot today for you to call me out on my sin. Like, it needed to be a cooler day. Like, I needed to be, I needed to have a great quiet time that day. I'm hungry, so that was wrong. Like you should have, I, you should have known after I eat, I, that's a great time to call me to repent. Like we can kind of put all these weird conditions on when God calls us to repent from sin. There can be no, no fly zones in your life as a disciple. If someone is bringing something up to you, if they're trying to, if, if they're bringing it up to you in the first place, that should mean that they found something. Because I don't know about you guys, I don't typically go up to people and just start like, hey, bro, and start pointing at things. right? Unless this is something, wow, that I've seen and has come to a point where, wow, I, I need to say something. I need to help this brother. I need to help this situation. Healing comes when we stop pretending and when we get open. When we can pray to God and ask for help with nothing held back in the dark, with clean consciences before God. And so I have a few challenges for us this week. Number one, and this one's time sensitive, to not let the sun set today before you get open with someone about what's going on in your heart. You may be feeling like, Chaz, well, I'm not in conflict. Well, you may not be. But there are still things that we can get open about. Attitudes, maybe, to clear out our own hearts. Make sure that before the sun sets today, you get open with someone about what's on your heart. And number two, I want to challenge us for a whole week to make prayer your first response. Whenever you're in a situation where you feel in trouble, upset, or overwhelmed. To make prayer your first response. Before you react... Before you say something, to pray. If we can be admitted, committed, if we can be committed 
to admitting that I'm not in control, to asking God for help and for turning from turning from the world to the word, we will see greater times of healing and restoration than we've ever known before. Let's make it so this week. Amen? Amen.